before President Jones takes the pulpit, I have asked her to stand by me as I do a more formal introduction. President Serene Jones is the 16th president of Union Theological Seminary in the city of New York. She is the first woman to hold that position. She has been in the position of presidency for seven years. Union Theological Seminary is an interdenominational, interfaith, interhuman seminary. It was, <laughs> at one time, Presbyterian. But when Princeton Theological Seminary brought Union Seminary up on charges of heresy, Union proudly welcomed the charge and became non-denominational and therefore one of the leading edge uh, theological institutions in the world and currently and contemporarily one of our leading voices for faith in the public realm. Under uh, Dr. Jones's leadership, Union has created a new field of study, interreligious engagement, in addition to getting a degree in Bible or pastoral ministry, one can go to Union now and get a degree in interreligious engagement. As part of that vision, in 2010, Dr. Jones hired professor of Islamic ministry who is a Muslim woman. We have a professor at Union who teaches Christianity and Hinduism. Our ties with Columbia University, as well as Jewish Theological Seminary, with whom we all share about a five-block radius, keep Buddhism and Jewish theology flowing through the classrooms at Union. This past year, the Board of Trustees unanimously voted to divest the institution from fossil fuels. And since August, Union students and faculty have been actively engaged in public demonstrations and the national conversation regarding faith, race, and the police actions in Ferguson, Missouri, and on Staten Island. Let us welcome the Reverend Dr. Serene Jones. Please join in the prayer for illumination printed in your bulletin. May your word come to us with much conviction, O God, so that in hearing what you have to say to us, our lives may be enlightened, our hearts encouraged, and our path made clear. Amen. So good morning. It is wonderful to be here with you all as you begin your season of social justice and of economic justice. And I, I hope you have a sense of the delight that I take, and I think it's shared in uh, being up in front of this congregation, sharing the role of leadership 
with three remarkable women who are all graduates of Union Theological Seminary and have played for a long time a leading role in the Presbyterian Church in the United States. It's just a pleasure that there's four of us up here. It's some of our forebearers, even from Union, would have never imagined it. So, And, and we have in the congregation a fifth uh, minister from Union, Elizabeth Carl from the Episcopal Church, who makes it five of us here today. It's wonderful, wonderful. So let me begin by reading to you our scripture lesson for this morning. It comes from Acts, the second chapter, verses 42 through 47. It is a scripture that comes to us at that point in the story of the early church where we see what is beginning to happen to those early, early Christians, wouldn't even have called themselves Christians at this point, who have come together in the shadow of the cross in the wake of the resurrection to figure out what it means to be those called to witness to Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the first description we get of what they do when they come together and decide what church is. These friends of Jesus devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and to praying together. And when they did this, awe came upon everyone, wonder, because there were many things being done in their presence. There were signs being given, and awe abounded. And in the midst of this, all who believed were together, and in their togetherness they held all things in common. This meant that they would sell their possessions and their goods and their lands and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, they spent much time together. They went to the temple and they broke bread together in their homes and they ate food and their hearts were glad and generous. And they praised God and they had the good will of all the people around them. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. So it's not hard to imagine why, through some uh, complicated interpretive gesture, I chose this to be the passage I would preach on this morning on the topic of economic justice. It's not a very hard passage to interpret, although when we look at it and begin to take in the full significance, you can understand why in the history of the Christian church, more than 80% of the sermons that have been preached on this, as they have come down to us over time, have chosen to interpret these words symbolically. So we hear that the apostles... And the people around them came together, and the first thing they did, as we still do in churches today, is they came together to be taught and to learn. They came together to hear the story of Jesus, to read what we now think of as the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, and to reflect together on what it means to be people called to this place. 
But they didn't just learn. They also sat together and they ate a meal. They shared their food. They did this simple act of praying together, most of it in silence in that early church. And then just as normal as the eating together and praying together and learning together, they decided to share all things they had in common. They sold their possessions, they sold their land, and they gave to all as any had need. Interesting point in this passage is it doesn't say they gave to each other as any had need, although that was, yes, happening, but they gave to all. The witness and service that they offered extended beyond the bounds of the community itself, and the giving was only bracketed by that reality called need. It's very interesting in this passage that it also tells us that this sharing, learning, eating, praying together produced in them not anxiety, not despair, not a general disorientation to the culture. They were joyful. They had glad and generous hearts. And even more, it's fascinating in the scripture, it doesn't say that this group doing this rather wild thing of sharing everything was not looked upon by the broader culture as a freakish cult hidden in a basement somewhere doing obscure things. They were looked upon with pleasure by all who saw them. Now, in the history of the tradition, when people have chosen to interpret this in symbolically, it's rather amusing because although there are passages in our scriptures that call out for symbolic interpretation, the book of Revelation, if it's not read symbolically, it was written to be interpreted at a metaphoric label, to extrapolate from it meanings that are hidden or are not yet clear to us. Or even when we read the Psalms, for instance, we read it as poetry meant to expand our imaginations about the geographic understanding of the depth and scope of God's love for us. It's not meant to be read as if it's a set of factual statements, but in the book of Acts, when we come to this section, there is no indication that the gospel writer wanted us to read this as a metaphor. Even today, in the context of congregations where money is often discussed in, in the prosperity gospel, the most common reading of this passage is to say, well, it's not really talking about selling what we own. It's about getting rid of anything that blocks our connection to God and immediately becomes a conversation about personal attributes and the places within our own psyches and souls where we pull ourselves away from a response to the call of God. And while I am completely confident that those realities are included in this passage, there is no way, as Christians, who take this book to be the word of God in our midst can turn what we are called upon to do in this passage into something that is anything less than the literal word of God. It amuses me to know in that in our country today, we're having in congregations across the land huge battles around scriptural interpretation on the status of same-sex marriage and what scripture has to say about it, which is very little. And yet when it comes up, the <clears throat> discussions of what God really means are at the forefront of these debates, but 
where in our congregations across the land <coughs> excuse me are we having such serious conversations about the issue of poverty which there's not a single page in our holy book that does not address that issue in a straightforward and sustained way I teach a course at Union called Economics and Theology, and last night I had a chance to talk with a wonderful group of people, Union alums and members of Chevy Chase Presbyterian, uh, to talk about economics and theology with a particular focus on racism in this country. And the two major points I made in that conversation was, one, when we think about racism economically, we need to look at the disparate impact that our economic policies have on communities of color. One of the major points I made there is to say since 2008, the African-American community in this country, because of these unstable mortgage mechanisms, lost, has lost 63% of its assets. But the second point, and one that is equally important, is the degree to which our inability in this country to deal with the legacy of slavery and the continued racism that lives within us that we find ourselves time and again for the past 200 years in a state of political divide where race is the thing that divides us and yet race is the thing that we will not talk about and race becomes the thing that stops us from developing a political will to address the economic situation that undergirds it all. You oftentimes in this country, because of our inability to deal with race, think we'd rather fight ourselves to the edge of oblivion than it would be to look at the wound which harms us all. Today, however, I want to turn to more directly the topic of economic justice and just say a few things about what I have been uh, pondering and playing with with union students and faculty over these last three years that have grown out of my course in theology and economics. I teach this course with a man named Rob Johnson who is president of the Institute for New Economic Thinking, a former Yale professor of economics. I didn't even take an economics course when I was in college, so uh, to teach this course I needed an economist to teach with me. But what has been surprising is that Rob tells me and tells the students time and again, first of all, we need to recognize a very simple economic truth that you don't have to be an economist to see, that the situation in which we find ourselves now in this country makes the state of the robber barons a century ago looked like kindergarten. Just a few of the statistics that I threw out last night. Right now in the United States, 50 million people live in poverty. 50 million people. Now I should be able to say that and just simply get out of this pulpit today and my sermon would be done. 50 million people live in poverty. And in a recent AP study that was, uh, um, I found it in uh, USA Today, which by no means is a radical economic newspaper, um, the claim was made that four out of five Americans in our present economy, to take this in is very hard, four out of our five Americans by the time they reach the age 60 will have had periods in their lives of joblessness and dependency upon state support. That is not a small number of people at the bottom of the economic scale. That is a number that includes many of us in this congregation even. If you're white, there is a 63% chance that you will end up in that group. 
If you're African American, it's an 87% chance. The second thing that Rob has us remember all the time when we begin to think about this economic reality and what we do is that one of the biggest illusions that we live under in this country is that we have a group of people called economists who in some back office somewhere are crunching numbers and enacting theories because they are the experts that are determined and focused on moving us to a healthy economic place. Rob himself, as an economist, reminds us every day that the work of economists is more like the work of an English professor who teaches you how to read and interpret and maybe even write something like Shakespeare, where you generate beautiful fictions that have the capacity to shape minds and render cultures. But it is not a hard science. It is not a data-driven science, and it is just as interpretive and value-ridden as anything we've done. But in this country, because of the illusion of this expertism, we have backed away from, as common people, assuming that we can participate in discussions determining the future of our economy. It is our discussion, not theirs. And finally, Rob reminds us all the time that insecurity about our present state of affairs is not something known only by those who are suffering from the negative impact of it. Increasingly, even in the halls of high finance, there is deep concern about the extremes of wealth and poverty that now haunt our culture. Just one example of this was Nick Hanauer, who was one of the founders of Amazon's article went viral this summer uh, called The Pitchforks Are Coming For Us Plutarchs. And Nick says in very clear language, if you look back historically at any point in time when the wealth distribution reaches the levels that it is today, you get to a point where you have a choice of even either radical change that is supported by the Plutarchs, and for Nick Hanauer, those are the people he describes as having the capacity to buy nations, it either happens because the Plutarchs agree to the process of change or because the pitchforks come to them for them. He echoes here the sentiments of John F. Kennedy who reminded us time and again to quote him directly, if we make peaceful revolution unimaginable in this country, we make violent revolution inevitable. I say this to just focus for you the depth of the crisis into which we are. We are not spiraling into it. We are in it. We are in it. And the question immediately comes, if in fact we are in it, you see the signs in every direction, why aren't we changing it? What is stopping us from this? Well, one of the most common responses I hear, it's one myself, I often find rolling around in the back of my brain, well, Let's say we're not going to give it to the experts, but we have to figure it out. What is it that we should do? We don't really know what will fix this system. That, in fact, is not the case. We know what will fix it. We have models around the world. If you look at the numbers when it comes to production, the amount of wealth generated proportionally, the United States sits at the very top of the pile. But if you look at the question of distribution, how the wealth produced is shared in the broader culture. We are number 30 
on the list. 30. There's 29 nations who distribute their wealth in a more equitable manner than we do. We have the examples of Sweden and Norway, two of those nations that sit at the top, and they've given us some very practical, simple insights into what it takes. And I want to just lay out, I'm not going to say much about them today, but three of them. One, we need to change our inheritance laws. Now, is that such a radical idea? Well, yes, because in this country when you say inheritance, you think, well, they're going to stop the poor farmer from handing her land over to her daughter or son. But in fact, some of the things that are on the table and model in these uh, Norway and Sweden are things like, okay, you can't pass on to your children more than $20 million. If we were to do that, we would have enough money in that single act to completely reconstruct our public education system. And anyone inheriting $20 million should be, find comfort in the fact that the generosity and well-being of their parents is being visited upon them in the form of riches that they are given then to share. Similarly, second, we need to put caps on income and have a sense of what a universal income would be. Now again, we hear this, we think, are we talking about socialism? No, it's a simple equation that goes like this. We need to have a guaranteed universal income somewhere in the neighborhood of 30, 35,000 a year. For people who are working, we need to have a bottom level income of 50,000 a year. And for those who are making a lot of money, we need to cap it at 10 million a year. A radical idea. That range is huge in terms of what people would still be able to experience in terms of the degrees of wealth and poverty, and yet that act alone would be enough to repair and construct in new ways our health care system. So we need to think about inheritance, we need to think about universal income and income caps, and finally, and this is one that our forebearers never imagined but is for a, before us in acute form now, we need to begin to pay, particularly in our corporations, for the water and the air and the land that is used to fuel the furnaces of the industry that drive our economy. It's not to even talk about a tax, it's to simply require that when air and water which belong to all of us are used or misused, you must pay for them much like you would labor or coal. A radical idea, it fits very squarely within what we think of as the ideals of a market economy, which is the topic I want to turn to and stay with for just a minute. When we begin to think about the restructuring of our economy in ways that to us now seem radical, it's important to go back and remember the very stories and frameworks that have grounded this nation and the community sitting in the pews today for over 500 years. And for that purpose, I want to turn to two figures and just say a few words about them. We read them in my economics class. Adam Smith, the theoretical underpinnings, who produce the theoretical underpinnings of the free market system, and John Calvin, 
the um, most powerful theological voice undergirding even present-day practices of the Presbyterian community in the United States. They have a very similar understanding when viewed from 30,000 feet about how we think about economics and politics. And they view it in the big arc of an understanding of the meaning of life and the unfolding logic of our universe. To tell their story in simple terms, the word economics simply refers to the rules of the household. Economics describes the rules that we set up to guide the way when a community comes together, we decide to structure the terms of our engagement with one another. And those rules have to do with how we produce goods and exchange them. It also has to do with how we distribute political power. And both Adam Smith and John Calvin, rooted in that tradition, believed that God created a world in which all people were equally loved by God and that God created this world so that human beings could flourish in it by caring for one another and caring and uh, expanding upon, in a sense, thriving in the midst of the goods of that creation which God has blessed us with. So when we look to the rules that construct a household economy, our politics, our terms of economic exchange, Calvin and Adam Smith suggest that we pause and think about three additional features of human life that should come into this. We're all equal, yes. We've been given the world and told to thrive in it, yes. But they say three things. First of all, human beings in general come straight out of our scriptures. Human beings are glorious creatures. We are capable of enormous imagination. We have minds that can problem solve, that can grasp the complexities of the world, and that we can put to creative use to produce and in its implementation engage our world in ways that make it better. We're glorious. We're amazing creatures. Secondly, we're also fragile. We're born and we die. We have a period of time in which we live and our bodies are not invulnerable. And even our minds and all their complexities cannot comprehend all there is to know. According to Adam Smith and John Calvin, we're finite and we have to deal every day with our own limits as well as our own expanse. And then thirdly, today it sometimes sounds harsh to our ears, but the reality they describe still holds true. We are sinful. And what they meant by that was this observation, that human beings, because they are fragile, because they are finite and because they can imagine the infinite are riven with fear. They become anxious about their place in the world. And that fear can make us violent. That fear can make us greedy. As in our insecurity, we try to collect around us things that will protect us. And that fear launches us into an unceasing quest for power in which we try to be the gods of our own life. Glorious, fragile, and sinful, we are people like this who need to come up with rules to govern us 
So when they produced what we now think of as democratic theory, they said we need to have a political process that, represent, that recognizes that everyone is equal and everyone must have equal right to participate in the decisions about who governs us. So our glory can show, but also our sinfulness can be circumscribed. When it gets to economics, this gets even more explicit. Both Calvin and Adam Smith insist that we need an economic system that encourages creativity, that rewards problem solving, that celebrates our glory. A system that also, in recognition of our sinfulness, has around it constraints that assure that what is produced by it and the distribution of goods that comes from it does not become the occasion for increased sinfulness but for the celebration of our glory. For in our fragile lives we are guaranteed to corrupt it. Adam Smith believed the invisible hand of God would in all times come down and make sure that the system self-regulated. He was afraid of monopolies. He would have been horrified by what we have now in the United States. John Calvin was a little more practical than Adam Smith. He believed that in Geneva, in its economic systems, there needed to be regulations in place because we were guaranteed to abuse the system if they were not there. And he counseled every Christian all things in moderation, by which he meant we're called to have lives that are comfortable, lives where we celebrate, lives where we have what we need, but not in excess because it was a simple insight into the fact that that excess becomes for us a prison more than a state of possibility. So what does this say about where we are today in this system and what we can do to change it? Well, we have a very special role, I believe, as Christians and as people that are part of communities that continue to tell a story about the meaning of life that holds these values and principles as precious. Michael Sandel, professor at Harvard, has written a book I recommend to you entitled What Money Can't Buy. And in the book, he, pushing beyond even the framework I've developed for Calvin and Adam Smith, makes the observation that in even as recent as the 60s, there was still a belief in this country that you could have a market system that, if circumscribed, could allow the flourishing of multiple value systems. Based on his research and his argument, he says today, we have a market system that presently controls not only how we understand the buying and selling of goods, but has begun to be the measure of meaning itself. He offers us this, there's almost nothing left that money can't buy. And he says this with great fear and great concern, and he ends this, this professor of a secular university by calling upon our institutions of higher education and our religious communities as the last bearers of the hope that we can turn this around to as the most important political action they could undertake to flame the, the flames 
that burn in the fire of those stories and words and the truth that they tell and tell the story. And so those first disciples gathered together and we have to remind ourselves they prayed and they ate good food. They had a lot to learn so they came together and read scripture and they sold all they had and they shared it according to need. And the joy and spirit of God was wild among them and wondrous things happened. May we bless these words to our hearing. Amen.